Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Brothers and sisters, welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem to our evening Bible study on the book of Leviticus. We're actually up to chapter 25, long chapter, probably won't get all through it tonight. We're drawing to a close, and uh, I hope that we've been, as we've been learning about holiness, we've been wanting by the Spirit to put it into practice and, uh, and actually live out our calling to be a holy people, which uh, we are enjoined to do by the Apostle Peter. So, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is present. He's present with us now, uniting us as a family, which is very precious. But also he's present with you, whoever is listening, and uh, it makes us connected. So it's a blessing to have you here. So our sister, Yvonne from Brazil, will acknowledge the Spirit's presence and bless us all with our opening prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together um, with people from all over the world, online, Lord, and those that will listen afterwards, um, to have the freedom to be able to share and to expose your word and to understand it. And we thank you so much because you are a merciful God, a God that is our shield and our rock and our fortress in times of difficulties and times of need and times of joy, Lord. And most importantly, Lord, we pray that as we listen to the word and we digest, um, that we can put in practice, Lord, that we can love God and love our neighbor. And we, we thank you so much, Lord, for your mercies for this time together. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. As is our tradition, we go over our summary from last week just to keep ourselves refreshed and, uh, and um, you know, have a sense of continuity. For those that are following in the podcast, the notes should be able to be downloaded from the website. Summary from Leviticus 24. Following a discussion on the festal, festal calendar of the Lord, that's chapter 23, which is annual in nature, Moses is commanded to maintain a perpetual light burning regularly inside the tabernacle, which is a daily requirement. Perhaps this serves to remind the Israelites of the daily worship activities of the tabernacle and not only the yearly feasts. Daily worship guards against Christmas, Easter, Christianity. The oil for the menorah was of pure, clean olives made for the pure gold lampstand, which has become one of the iconic, enduring images of the Jewish people. God commands Aaron to maintain the light from evening to morning. God did not want the tabernacle to be left in darkness, which begs the question, why? What was the light for? The only people who would make use of the light would be Aaron, his descendants, and perhaps a few chosen priests to assist in the sanctuary. If the light was solely of practical value so that priests could see what they were doing, then surely they would bring their own light into the tabernacle as required. In our discussion, we noted that according to oral tradition, the temple had windows that effectively took the light inside to the outside. God is light, 
and light has strong biblical and theological themes. The first thing called into existence was light. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. And there is an element of participation here too. God does not dwell in darkness. He initiates the fire on the altar first. He calls light into being, and he requests that we maintain the light, share and spread the light. Food offerings to local deities were commonplace in antiquity, and this practice is still followed in the Asian and animistic cultures. Similarly, Israel was required to present food to God. The Torah describes multiple types of food offerings for the Lord, many times accompanied by the phrase, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Here in Leviticus, we get the details of the continual food offering called the bread of the presence. God doesn't actually eat, as we understand the concept of eating. The priests actually eat the bread at the end of the week. Incense is added to the bread, and thus the sense of smell is added to the sense of taste in this activity of worship. If we think about it, God can see, he can hear, he can smell. So perhaps he can also taste in a manner in which we currently cannot fathom. Food fellowship is an important concept in the Bible. There is a future banquet waiting for us in heaven. The Almighty himself will be present, yet even there he will not eat as we will. Perhaps it is the nature of the eating, its participatory nature. That is, it's something we do together that's important and desired by the Lord. Jesus says at the Last Supper, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Luke 22. Like the perpetual light, the bread of the presence was also to be continual. This signifies the desire of God to have an unbroken relationship with his people. The majority of Israelites would never actually see the bread of the presence, nor its preparation or its setting before the Lord. All they would know is that it was there and has been done on their behalf. Believing without seeing, which as Jesus will remind us in John 20, is the best of beliefs. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. The regulations and laws for holiness are now interrupted by a short narrative, which is uncommon in Leviticus. The narrative identifies the punishment for blasphemy and gives some background to the historical roots for the extreme caution in Judaism in the use of the sacred name to this day. The text mentions the guilty man's genealogy as Israelite Egyptian. He was part of the mixed multitude that went out of Egypt with Israel. His mother, Shlomit, is from the tribe of Dan, although the man himself is tribe-less and bears no name. Somehow, an altercation ensures with another nameless Israelite, and the Egyptian invokes the name of God in a curse. How he knows the name is not explained. In a fascinating, even if unlikely, oral tradition, Rashi says the blasphemer is the son of the Egyptian who Moses slew in the beginning of Exodus, and that Moses killed the Egyptian using the name of God. 
This exegesis follows the Jewish pattern of beginnings and endings occurring in the same place and in the same way. Leviticus notes he is Egyptian, so the commentators look back in the text for another encounter that involves Israelites quarreling and an Egyptian. And they find one in the story of Moses and the Egyptian. There is also a comment on the mother's name. Shlomit, daughter of Divri. Divri is from the verb to speak. Jewish exegetes say she was a gossip. She could not control her tongue, and this flaw was imparted to her son. Hence, this incident can be the source of many sermons on the dreaded power of the tongue for the rabbis. The man is seized as they know he has done wrong. Taking the name of God in vain is the third commandment from Mount Sinai. But no penalty is provided in the previous prohibitions in Exodus. Just says you can't do it. Doesn't say what happens if you do do it. And the one who is blaspheming is not actually a fully-fledged Israelite. So one conundrum is the question of how the Torah relates to non-Israelites. How do they discern the will of the Lord? One option would have been the Urim and Thummim, which are placed on Aaron as a communication device to God. The heavenly judgment falls on the death penalty, and the man is removed and stoned by the community. The community enacts the punishment. It is not relegated to law enforcers. Having put someone to death, Leviticus immediately restates a principle, a judicial principle found earlier in Exodus. In 21, actually, life for a life, eye for an eye, etc. Here in Leviticus, monetary equivalent is substituted for the life of an animal. The sages of Israel note that the injunction, eye for an eye, hand for a hand, etc., was not actually practiced. Instead, the monetary substitution was extended from animals to fellow human beings. Human nature is often far too lenient or far too severe when it comes to crime and punishment. So here, the Lord sets an appropriate limit to punishment. Note, though, when it comes to the name of God, the punishment remains the death penalty. Verse 22 answers the conundrum of how the Torah applies to non-Israelites. And the answer is, in the full extent, the same law applies to all peoples equally. God does not give the Israelite an unfair advantage over a foreigner in terms of the law and vice versa. Now, Leviticus now returns to the concept of holy time as the next chapter details the Shemitah and the Jubilee and its relationship to the land. All right. So Leviticus 25 is a really long chapter. So I think what we'll do is we'll read the first 22 verses, which is the Shemitah and the Jubilee, and uh, see how far we get. And if we continue on, we can then go on to and do redemption, and the idea of the Goel, the Redeemer, and the sort of Messianic ideas that, that plays out. Uh, and then towards the end of the chapter, it begins to get into um, the nature of generosity, is, uh, is how God doesn't enforce a, uh, a uh, universal social welfare system, <laughs> okay? But he really does expect us to have an obligation to the poor. So there is a difference. One is 
the state is in control and the other is God is in control. And uh, the, the best form uh, of generosity would obviously be the one where God is in control. All right, so let's read um, Leviticus 25. First 25 verses, uh, 22 verses. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for your wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, for each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, and you shall not, and you shall, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill, and you will dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks be to God. All right, guys, so based on an initial, initial uh, literal reading, uh, simple reading, what are the things that j- jump out at you? I'm going to start on this one. Is that okay? We're at Mount Sinai. Out of all this time, 
you know, there I was thinking and getting used to this idea. You know, they're wandering through the wilderness. They must be almost, yeah, almost maybe halfway, maybe three quarters of the way through the desert. Maybe they're a little tired, had a few adventures, watched God fight. No, we are back at the beginning still. And um, yeah, there's 120 days. Moses up on the mountain. It's like three sets of 40. But, but still, we're actually based at, uh, at Mount Sinai. Uh, with all the thunder and the lightning and the power and the, the um, and the the uh, the exodus is still fresh in absolutely everyone's mind, right? This is not we haven't even got through our first year yet. We have we're still remembering the smell of the waters we walked through you know, these, these these walls of water from the Egyptians. Uh, so that's a I thought that was pretty special. I was like, oh my gosh, we're actually at Mount Sinai. Um, anyway, anything else? Anybody else jump out at you? Kate from Scotland. I, I actually, I'm proud of myself because I wrote down Mount Sinai and a query. So I noticed something. I'm very pleased. Thank you so much for your teaching. <laughs> no, but it takes a while for it to sink, sink, sink in. Um, it, right, right at the beginning of the, this chapter, it seems as though it's, it's laying out the fact that the land has equal importance to man. It's giving the land a Sabbath. We have been given a Sabbath. This is saying that the land has to have a Sabbath. So it's it's creating that, um, the fact that we, we are as important as the land and the land is as important as we are. So we have to tend to it. As the land feeds us, we care for the land. That was my thought. That's a good thought. And... The Leviticus is, has a strong personification of land. The oh. land reacts to sin. We've seen him vomit people out and, and nations out. But also, you're quite right, the land gets a rest and the land is going to, to that's how powerful the Sabbath is. It actually can affect uh, land. And, 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 and we need to keep that theology going into the New Testament. Remember, God doesn't change. So remember, when in the Gospel of John, when he says, you know, for God so loved the world, right? And sometimes, sometimes we only think of the humans on it. But that's actually not true. God loved the humans on it, absolutely. But he also loved the world because he made it. And remember, when every time he made it, he said, this is good. So he actually cares for every little thing that he made, which is actually quite special when you think about it. But uh, and so God loves the world and that blessing that comes from the, the Beatitudes. The meek shall inherit. Yeah. The earth. Yeah. So there's, there's this connection that we have with the earth. There's an incredible connection that we all have to the land. And, and uh, any of you, is there anybody here, farmers? Farmers always know that there's um, an incredible relationship that farmers have with their earth. And they know it. They can taste it. They know when it's doing well. They know when it's struggling, and they can do their best to help it. Uh, it's quite special. All right, a couple other hands raised. We've got Vida or David. Erin, uh, I find it quite interesting in verse 9 that the trumpet is blown on the Jubilee for the Day of Atonement. And I find it interesting that that's one of the feasts that actually is linked to the Sabbath. Of, of you know it's like a jubilee which is everything going back but yet it's a day of atonement and i just wondered what thoughts anybody would have on that when we get to it yeah i, I made some notes in mine when i was studying it too going oh yes the the day of atonement out of all the feasts of the lord that are mentioned 
it's that one, and that one gets a special trumpet blast. And, uh, I mean, there must be something messianic with that, surely. And uh, we can discuss it when we get there because, yes, there are Jewish groups that write nice, long, exegetical pieces on when the Messiah will come and how he will do it with a trumpet blast. All righty. Janet from Canada. I'm not sure if you actually read verse 23, but um, I'm, I'm looking at this in the sense that He's giving them the land, but it's it's still his. And, and the most important thing is going to be their relationship with him on the land um, rather than... But there, there's... Um, there, and also, sorry, did I did I jump ahead to verse 23? No, that, that's fine. If, if Mordecai was here, he would tell me because he tells me all the time, even in Israel today, you still can't buy the land. So, but there's there's this sense of, I don't know what the Hebrew is here, but saying, you are aliens and sojourners. They've just come out of Egypt where they were aliens. And, you know, help me if you know the, the Hebrew for that. And there's this sense of, you're going to have something, but it's, it's still going to be temporary. There's yeah. this look forward to this time. Um, as you're saying, there's something messianic in there that, um, you know, that there'd be a, there's going to be a time when, when, the, when we'll be on the earth with him and it will be completely restored. So that we will no longer be aliens. But to have this sense of I'm, I'm giving you something, and, but, but you're not going to be really attached to it in the same way that you will be to me. Uh, and, and yet, you know, you're taking care of something really that is the Lord's. There's an incredible bond, yes, between people, land, and God. The earth belongs to the Lord, and we belong to the Lord, and the Lord blesses us with land. Uh, and there's the holy land, but then everybody gets land, right? We, mm-hmm. we sometimes forget that God has given boundaries and borders to other nations, and they're good too. All of the earth, when God looked down, he said, this is good. He didn't say, yeah, some of it's okay. Um, some of it's a little bit better than others. Uh, but this little spot in the middle of nowhere, that's absolutely perfect. You know, um, it's, 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 uh, we, have to, we have to try and remember that a chosen people doesn't mean necessarily a better people. They're chosen for a reason. And God still loves everyone. And a promised land was promised to a certain people. But other nations were also given borders and boundaries just as much. And uh, we're not all told uh, that we should all live in America or all live in Australia, as nice as some of those countries might be. Um, But uh, there is certain pieces of property that God has a particular eye on, which is an interesting thought. Can I just interject something here? It's very interesting in the culture that I live in where Gaia, who's the sort of the goddess of the world, is has been elevated in the sense that perhaps in, in our spirit is a feeling that there is, um, you know, a sacredness to land. And we have to, we have to acknowledge somebody for it. And we've gone so far from understanding that we're stewards of God's creation to now um, being stewards of Gaia's of Gaia, the goddess of 
the world of, of land. And land has become also in our culture because the First Nation people, the, um, the natives, have a particular relationship to the land that now that's being incorporated even into some churches, that, that we must see the sacredness of the land as they see the sacredness of the land. So it's, it's, um, it's just, it, it's something that's very pervasive. Um, and I don't think you would necessarily have that in Israel the same way, or maybe in some of the other nations, people might comment on that. Well, I think what we, we the Bible, but the Bible portrays that the land is alive, right? All creation is groaning for its redemption. It's conscious. It's alive. It's not a God, um, but it's alive. And there is a relationship that this living land has with living people. And then there's the participation of rulership where God, he's, he has the dominion. And yet he also right at the beginning of creation says, now, man, you, you go and you have dominion. You have dominion with me. You'll be, be ruling and reigning this, this with me. What was Adam's job? Yeah, to tend the garden. Was the garden meant to expand or was it meant to be static and, and still? Yeah, it's meant to expand. And uh, just like the kingdom is, is always meant to expand. Um, and uh, and that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. All right, Yvonne, you've got a hand raised. Yeah, uh, verse 25 to 27, it's like a little mini chiasm where 25 and 27 talks about the redemption of land, redemption yeah. of the poor man, redemption for, and 27 also talks about the redemption of the land, redemption of the firstborn. You've got right, so so it's interesting, and then and just right at the end of Leviticus, and then you have 26, which is, I'm always fascinated, and it's very scary, actually, 26, but it, and then it talks about, so he redeems us, but this is, this is the condition of staying in the land. And um, I've redeemed you, but this is what you need to do, you know, for, for obedience. And if you don't, um, then it'll get nasty. It's just interesting, the little little chiasm there. Yeah. yeah. And we'll get to that one probably next week. But there is our conditional statements. It's not always acceptable theology uh, for some denominations. However, having said that, those texts are still there in the Bible. If if then statements are all through the Gospel of John, and Deuteronomy. Uh, yes, if you do this, then this happens, um, and and you see it also here. It's the same theology. God hasn't changed in the way He actually uh, deals with with His creation. If you love me, correct. If you love me, then my Father and I will come and live with you. Ergo, if you don't, well, we won't. Yeah. So, okay. Any other comments on the on the literal of the text? Otherwise, we'll, we'll jump in and start seeing how this, uh, what we can learn as a community um, and people. Even if we don't own land, we'll live in it. All right. Okay. Let's have a look. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. So, as mentioned, we now have time and place, something that we hadn't had before. Okay, hands up. Who actually thought, like me, that we were sort of kind of halfway through the Exodus by this stage? Anybody else? Yeah. I think, and all of a sudden, we're now propelled. We're right back uh, at the start, which is interesting. So we know where we know where Moses is. He's on Mount Sinai, and uh, there's this tradition that you can get. And you can kind of see where the Jewish people are getting it. That uh, what did Moses receive on Mount Sinai? Everything. He got it all. It wasn't that 
You know, he sort of was making it up as he as he goes along. Although Deuteronomy, remember, is the uh, the last words of Moses on the eve of them actually coming in to the land, which means that how many books is the actual Torah on Mount Sinai? It's four, right? We there's four books from Mount Sinai, and then chapter uh, book five is um, commentary. And uh, there's a few extra rules given in, yes, but it tends to be a bit, bit more commentary. For those that would like to listen to that, I hope that our Deuteronomy podcast is still up online. Uh, we can recommend the last words of Moses to everybody. The Lord speaks to Moses to say, speak to the people of Israel, not just to the priests, not to Aaron and some special function that the priesthood has to have. This is actually going to be something that all the people are going to hear. And as we have just seen and or was reminded by our narrative break in the last chapter, who is at Mount Sinai? Jews and Gentiles. Right. It's a mixed multitude. So when we say, oh, the people of Israel, we're actually talking about Jews and Gentiles. That little conundrum that people have been trying to wrestle with. Well, what actually do we do with the Torah? Do we just kind of keep it, hide it away from the Gentiles, and we'll just keep them obeying the seven laws of Moses? And no, it is the Torah is something that you share with the entire world, right? In, in Deuteronomy, Moses says, no other nation has, has something like, like this, right? This, this is, this is you've got to share this. And, of course, in the New Covenant, where does the Torah go? It goes on our hearts. So God is going to share his teaching, his guidance, his wisdom, the holiness code, all of those things with, with all of his creation. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, um, when you come into the land that I give you, yeah, that's, that's a nice little phrase, right? When you come into the land that I give you, uh, when the children of Israel walk in, uh, do they just walk in? No. What do they have to do? Yeah, they have to fight. So God says, I'm going to give you a land. Oh, fantastic. Who wants to go in and fight for it? No, no, no. You're supposed to just be giving it to me. Oh, no, no, no. That's, that's, not, that's not part of the giving here. We sometimes think that gifts from God come without any absolute obligation and or effort on our side. And that's actually not true is that um, grace, I don't know who said this quote, but um, David Pelegi has said it a few times in a, in a sermon and it's stuck in my brain, but I can't give you the right attribution. He said, uh, grace is not opposed to effort. Okay? It's not that effort, your work, makes God be gracious to you. No, it's that God is gracious to you and is not opposed to you having and putting things into practice. Grace. Um, yeah, grace is not, is not opposed to effort. So God is going to give you the land, but that doesn't mean it's, it's, not, it's not something you have to not fight for. Okay. Now, once you actually get into the land, then you start this land commandment. Okay. And this is, uh, we're thinking in the future here. Here we are at Mount Sinai. We've got another 40 years before we're ever going to be fulfilling this commandment. Okay. So this is uh, one of those uh, commands for a promised future to a generation unyet born. That's a wild thought just there, right? Uh, we will pre pre prepare a commandment that your kids who are not even born yet, they're going to have to put into practice, um, okay? The land will keep a Sabbath to the Lord, okay? This is something that not just priests do. 
This is not something that the temple does. This is something that the, 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 the people do. All right. So the land has a rest. Any thoughts about that concept? That's just the first two verses. Any thoughts there? So we're not to eat things that grow of themselves. Is that what it said? It's a, it's a, it's a good point, Rocky. We'll get into that in a second. Which land? Israel. Okay. What about England? Does it have to have a Shemitah? Right. And see, the, the, actual, the actual literal command is for the land of Israel. Just that bit has to have a, 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 what they call the Shemitah, a, a, a Sabbath rest. He's not saying all of creation gets rest, even though, here's the interesting conundrum, when God made the Sabbath, there weren't any Jews or Gentiles yet. Right? So creation... So creation has a Sabbath. You get you go in a minute, Kate. I'm nearly off my soapbox. <laughs> the, the the creation has a Sabbath, which is great. And I think and and the this and we've talked about it in St. Jude and St. James several times. This sort of perpetual 24-7 um, world that we've rushed into, which is incredibly dangerous for people. It's you know it's causing people stress and uh, anxiety, and no one knows how to rest, and families are breaking down, all kinds of troubles. Um, but the, this inbuilt thing uh, right at the beginning, the Sabbath, which is a creation, was universal. Now you get a land element. There's a particular spot on the planet that also needs to have a special rest. Okay, Kate, you're up. I, just, I was just wondering, I think in agriculture, and, and I, I'm not an agriculturist, and, but I sort of grew up in the country and mum was a gardener and all, but don't they have... Um, they let parts of their land rotate and lie fallow. I think they do that. Yep. Michelle's, Michelle's dad was a farmer and he did that. Yeah. And, yep. So the land, the land rested how, every, every, six every six years. Yes. Yeah. There was like a rotational. And um, the, it's tied in with the idea of not, the thing that struck me as it goes on to the later verses is, you have to grow enough. If you're going to lay that land fallow, you have to be able to produce enough food in order to lay it fallow. And God provides that too by saying that you will grow, he will help you to do this. You know, we're not expected just to go ahead and say, right, we can't grow anything on that piece of land or we can't plant anything that year. He's actually giving us a way of allowing the land. And it's a little bit like our bodies. We have to... Regenerate. We have to gather ourselves together, have time of rest, and so the land is doing what our bodies do. Yeah, I like the verse twenty-one where God says, "I will command my blessing." What an interesting way to describe a blessing! Not, "I will give my blessing." I shall bless a blessing. I shall pronounce a blessing. No, I will command a blessing, which is a very well, well a very powerful way of describing how God's going to uh, not force the land, but certainly encourage the land to produce threefold, which is a very interesting way for the Lord to do. Okay, a couple of hands raised. Let's go to Nigeria. Uh, Shimshon, you there, brother? Yeah, shalom, everyone. First, um, yeah, what um, Kate was trying to say, um, land following is practiced in um, most agricultural um, society. They do land following. 
Um, but the point I wanted to draw out is what you said about the Shemitah was, um, was intended for the land of Israel. Um, I see that a bit, um, um, I don't know how to describe it. If the, if, if the Shemitah is for the land of Israel, that means um, the, every Jew outside Israel is, is not permitted to keep the Shemitah. So it's, it's, it will be an, an incentive for people to run out of the land and um, <laughs> and be able to have their uh, back. You know, on the seventh year, everybody runs out and you know and um, you know you know be able to farm and having those things. Um, you know, there is a scripture. I think it's Amos in Amos um, nine verse seven. Says something very interesting. God was speaking to the train of Israel and he says that. Uh, the the Israelites are they are like the Kushites. I say, I'm not the I'm not you Israelites, same as the Kushite to me. Did I not bring Israel from Egypt and Philistine from Kafor and Aramean from Kir? So it wasn't only the, um, the children of Israel that God brought from one land to another land. And um, if we look at it, about God gives everybody. Um, there, there is no other. There is no documentation of the laws that God to to the Philistines, for instance, he brought them from the land um, of um, Kafo. Um, I don't know where that is, actually, but there is no documentation of the laws for that land, and there is no documentation for the laws of um, for, for the others. Um, I want to believe that God was using Israel as a template for the rest of the nation, and um, we could borrow from whatever God is giving Israel and use it for each and every land that is um, there. That's my thought of it. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a, a note down. Oops. The, the view there is that the Israel is a template for the nations and a light to the nations. And so there, on that view, the extension is the Shemitah then applies to uh, outside the land. So you can see that being reflected in agricultural farming of where they leave the land fallow. I mean, they're, they're doing that for agricultural reasons. They're certainly not doing that for religious smuta reasons, okay? Although I will say this, Michelle's dad, okay, was a very devout Lutheran, and he was doing the following for the, for the biblical smuta reasons, okay? Because he was like, oh, it says in the Bible, that's what we do, okay? Um, the other, other side of the view is, let's remember, interestingly enough, they're in uh, Sinai, We've got another 40 years of this, right? So the Shemitah is not being applied to them where they are. So I understand the view that we should we should take it and, and use it as a template. We also know that uh, for Jewish people, they also look literally and they go, no, it's just for Israel. Um, and it's the land. So much so that when they, uh, last year was a Shemitah, and I asked the rabbi, hey, you know, what sort of things can I do around my garden? And he said, oh, you can't touch the earth. That's the rule. But you can plant plants in pots. <laughs> and it's like, what? And he's like, yeah, it's not, that's actually not the earth. As long as it's actually raised off the earth, you can do what you like. And, uh, man alive. They, they right away what a fine tooth coat. It was great. So we had a really cool conversation about what gardening I was and wasn't allowed to do in, uh, during a Shemitah year. All right. Uh, Vida or David, you got a hand raised. And then Andrew. It's very interesting that uh, there's a lot of scriptures associated with the land that we're just hearing about. Uh, for example, one of the commandments, if 
uh, honor your parents, if you, yeah. your mother and father, because then it will go well with you in the land. That's the Lord's like yeah. And also that um, in the Deuteronomy, uh, I think. 2 Chronicles 7.14. 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says when you, um, you'll heal, God will heal the land if, if, you know, if you pray. And also doesn't the land spew people out? And, and we know that people went into Babylon because they didn't keep the Sabbath, the land Sabbath. So it's, it's the, this whole uh, commandment about the land is actually of the land, of, and I think it is the land of Israel, like you say, it's, it's actually quite important. I, I agree. I think we're all here, we would agree. And for those that are listening, that um, I hope that we're all, we're all not, not learning for the first time, but, but re, re being reminded by the text of the connection that humans have with the earth, and that, that the people of Israel have with a particular land and how that land also has a particular relationship with the rest of the earth. And, uh, and, uh, and the, the so, as you say, there's so many verses that are connected with God, the people and the land. And when Israel did not keep their Sabbaths, then they were carted away to Babylon. And that was a catastrophic event. And uh, I think it's the Jeremiah, but I'll double check on that. I think Jeremiah records how now the land can take its Sabbaths, that when it was denied. Uh, it's interesting. Andrew from South Africa. Yeah, so a question rather than, uh, rather than a comment on the passage, and that is to what extent is the smithar practiced in, in modern-day Israel? So around the world, farmers may rotate their crops, leave Part of their land fallow, but they're not dependent on what that land produced in year six or their livelihood in year seven and eight. So are, are people in Israel relying on their crops from year six and year seven and eight? To what extent is the smittar practice today? Okay, excellent question. And um, um, I'm, Nama, do you know or would you like me to answer? Okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. So the majority of Israeli farmers do not practice Shemitah, as recorded here. Okay, I know that's I know it's a shock. It's sad. You think, what? What do they do? Um, many people sell their land to an Arab for that year, and with the agreement that it'll be bought back. And uh, uh, but there are there are kibbutzim. There are farmers in different parts of the, of, of the area uh, that do practice Shemitah and, um, and they have not gone out of business. So they, they seem to be still there. And uh, that was always the fear that if they didn't get that year's value of crop, that they would go out of business. And oddly enough, it's not true. So... Um, it's a good question, Andrew. Um, it would be would be absolutely wonderful, I think, if we would always say, Israel farmers, we're doing the Shemitah, there are lights to the nations, and let's all look and see what happens. But unfortunately, it's not put into practice the way we, we would like. Okay. Um, I hope that doesn't offend too many people, but uh, that's actually what goes on. Okay. Gleaning is done. That you can go and glean in the fields according to the literal word of the text. Um, but, uh, and when they plant, it, plant new trees, they don't harvest them for the appropriate number of years. Um, 
yeah, Janet says, observing Shemitah is an act of faith. That's true, absolutely. And what's interesting, Janet, is many of the kibbutzim that actually observe a Shemitah are not religious. And this notes, it's, and this is a comment on, on um, uh, the halakha of Zionism. What did I just say? Okay, um, so many, many of the original uh, Zionistic enterprises, that is, you know, the idea that Jewish people deserve to have a national homeland, um, were, were non-religious. They were secular. And they came and they farmed and they, they, they lived and died and, they, and they, they established what they called the Yeshuv, the, set, the, settle, the settlements. And, um, and, but many of them were, were not religious and yet... They kept a halakha. They kept a Jewish practice, um, sometimes even more so than their <laughs> religious neighbors. Isn't that isn't that very interesting? And that includes shemitah and first fruits, and you know, sitting down and having pesach. What are they doing? Because they don't they don't believe in anything. Um, but uh, there you go. Interesting, interesting phenomena to this day in this country, and they're having debates about it even to this day. In fact. Um, for those that are watching, this is a book I'm reading at the moment uh, and studying. It's a book by Michal Goodman um, called Chazarad uh, Teshuvah, Returning Without Repentance. And it describes the, um, it describes exactly what we're talking about. It describes uh, secular halakha. What, what, who, are, who are these non-religious who come to Israel with, with no faith, with no, no desire to repent and yet pick up the Bible and start putting those things into practice. It was very, very interesting. All right, Yvonne, you've got a question or a hand raised. Just a comment. My, yeah, my, I have a, I have a Hebrew teacher from Israel and she also, um, they, she, her, her parents work on a, on a kibbutzim and, and um, she also gives us like during the class cultural little like nuggets and she says, oh, my parents are, are going kind of, they're like working really hard to get everything prepared. And it's a secular kibbutzim. And she's, you know, she said they're working really hard to get everything under so they can rest for, for a year. And I thought that was very interesting, the comment that you just made it. It, it, is, it is so interesting how many times the, the secular are actually keeping <laughs> sometimes more than, than the religious. And then I had a question. Um, Shemitah's ending, uh, I think the 25th of September or something like that towards the end of the month. And, um, how are, the, what is the fruit like and what are, what percentage do you think of farmers are actually keeping Shemitah? Any idea? Um, on that question, I don't know. I do know that when Sukkot comes during a Shemitah year, the etrogs are all imported from overseas. That's, that's true. Um, so there was a couple of things where, where there was a big, big, change um, yeah so I, I to the answer to the question I, i'm not sure but i just wanted to <laughs> i just wanted to note a comment that damaris wrote in the chat if the fact because it's an interesting comment and i don't I, I, obviously i can't speak into its uh uh whether it's 100 true true but it is it definitely needs to be said if failure to in israel to observe the laws of shemitah according to the next is a cause of exile which it has been then is this a reason for the current conflict over the land in Israel? Possible. Possible. It could be. It, it, I'm not saying that it is, I'm not saying that it isn't, but it is something that is worth contemplating, that um, perhaps some of the tensions in the land uh, that, that uh, the Jewish people still have is one of those um, uh, results, perhaps, of um, 
not being as obedient as perhaps we should. Because remember, the text here says, if you do these things, you'll dwell securely, and, uh, which is interesting. And then I have one, one quick question about, about the fruit. So I mean, how do you notice, do you notice any, any difference like in your day-to-day life um, that this is a Shemitah year? And um, fruit, like do you notice not as good fruit or how, how, yeah, so I'm just wondering. We, we personally don't uh, notice. We, we actually, for our fruits and vegetables, we um, get a box delivered from various kibbutzim you, 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 they're just companies and you just say, I'd like a, a family box, please. And they pick whatever's being harvested. So you really don't know what you're going to get. It's like a surprise. And um, which is kind of fun. You know, some guy comes along, knocks on your door. And by the time you get to the door, he's run off. And there's just this box of um, fruits and vegetables from the local farms around the area. Um, and they're always great. You always, every now and again, they'll always throw in a vegetable which you've never seen before and you've got to go research what the heck it is and then you've got to figure out how to actually cook it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's fun. Okay, that's a good thing. Teresa, you had a hand raised from London. Yes, I think I've told you this in the past. Um, my rabbi, remember I used to know this Orthodox rabbi, and uh, he when I gave him a gift, I knew because I'd consulted an Israeli about it. What shall I give him to say thank you for whatever? And she said, take fruit, but not from Israel. If it's, you know, because I think it was the Shemitah year then. So he would not eat fruit. And I talked to him about it. He said, no, has this been made? Has this come from the land? Oh, no, that's fine. So I had to buy dates, you know, from anywhere else. But I couldn't give him anything from the land of Israel, because um, the fear for him, because he was ultra-Orthodox, was that uh, it, you know, that it wouldn't be kosher, that it, <laughs> because they weren't keeping the Shemitah. So, yep. yeah. This, this is true. Even though Israel allows, according to legal loopholes, for Jewish people to sell their land for one year to Arabs, and therefore they're not farming the land, somebody else's, um, even though we've, we've in the previous chapter, we, we know the conundrum's already been solved. The law applies to both the stranger and the, the sojourner. But anyway, okay, um, it is interesting that there are uh, sects of Judaism, streams of Judaism, call them that, streams of Judaism, which will take it a little bit more seriously and they will deliberately not buy produce from Israel because they say it shouldn't happen. It, it shouldn't be there. What should happen is the produce that's grown just naturally should be consumed by the inhabitants. It's there. You can dig it. Okay. Um, And uh, like we have a lemon tree here and um, we haven't done anything to it. And there's there's lemons everywhere. I mean, um, we've got, yeah, we've made, we've started squeezing it and freezing it because there's just so much of the stuff. Um, Wow. Yeah. So uh, it's really quite, quite nice. Uh, Shimshon, brother, you've got a hand raised. Um, I just want us to be able to differentiate the nation of the nation of the state of Israel today from the kingdom of Israel that we knew in the Bible. The kingdom of Israel was set up as a kingdom that God was ruling, and um, you could understand why everybody could keep the Shemitah then. Now it's a state; um, it's not set up in that fashion. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's set up as a secular state, for instance. Um, I think that's the best way to describe it. And so many of those rules are not enforced. You know, you can't enforce it by government. 
And um, on, on like in those days, it could be enforced because the priests were in the position to do that, you know. But now you can't do that. So it's very difficult for us to have some of those things, um, you know, implemented in this time. Yeah. That's a good point. Thanks for that, Shimshon. Yeah, I sometimes forget, even though I live here, okay, okay, for 23 years, I sometimes think, hey, you know, what's the, what we should be doing, what we're doing here. Forget that um, this state was this state was founded in, by secular people. Uh, good point. And um, and while there are lots of Orthodox here, the the rules of Israel are are influenced a little bit by Halakha and uh, and Torah and the Bible, but not all of them. And uh, that's that's true. So, yep, good point. Is that uh, we should shouldn't look at this current state of Israel and go, oh, look, you know. What, what, what these these Jews are they're not obeying the obeying the Bible? Well, that's probably because most of them don't actually read the Bible. <laughs> so, yeah, but that that should be our 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 responsibility. Hey guys, you should read the Bible. <laughs> you you're in the land. Yeah, really important. There's a connection between you and them, and it. Let's go for it. Let's have a, a good look. Okay, Rocky, you've got a hand raised. Well, yes. Uh, some of you may know that I grow a garden, and. Last year, I had such an incredible harvest that I decided to to this year. And so I didn't plant anything. Um, but in my normal garden bed, the uh, raspberries decided to netzer about two-thirds of that. And so now I've got whole new plants coming up in my fallow garden bed. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I, I'm going to be eating raspberries, I think, this year. I mean, isn't that allowed? You can eat what grows of itself? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You, whatever the earth produces is yours, brother. So, yeah, since I wasn't going to use the garden bed, God said, okay, well, we'll just grow raspberries there. All right, cool. Amen. Yeah, and I have a tangerine. I have a tangerine plant, uh, a tree. And it's been seven years and it hasn't grown like one single tangerine. And I was thinking, well, I should cut it, but wait, maybe I shouldn't this year. Although, you know, it's, it's in Israel, but just to honor. And I didn't, and, but when I went out to look in seven years, it was like hanging with tan in my gardener. He said, did you see what happened to the tangerine, your tangerine tree? I said, no, he said, it's like hanging with lots of tangerines. I was like, wow. It is amazing how much food the earth can produce. It, it really is. And uh, we are, it, it, this, this is an incredible world that God has given. And it is unfortunately our poor stewardship that causes all of our, all of our, our problems. Shouldn't be that, shouldn't be that way. Um, but unfortunately it is. Uh, Vida or David, you've got a hand raised. If we turn around and say that Israel was founded by seculars, how can we say that and ignore biblical prophecy? Where biblical prophecy said, the Lord said, I'm bringing you back into the land and I will do this and this and this. Yep. So it really is not secular as it started. That's correct. On one level, it is the Lord's initiative that he is bringing his people back and he's used a variety of nations, including dun, 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 the United Kingdom, uh, to assist that. The surprising thing for most of us who read the Bible is the, the majority of the Jews who came were completely secular. Um, but he's also used secular kings like Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar to also do his, his will. And as we've read in, in parts of the Torah and in um, definitely in Deuteronomy, 
God has even used pagan nations to do his will. Whole nations. And you go, well, that's interesting that God could uh, good and would do, do such things. And there's also, for me, I often um, look at that prophecy which we find in Ezekiel where it says um, um, God will bring you back to the land and then he'll pour his spirit on you. It's sort of like there's this, there's this stage. Um, yeah. Yes, he needs gets his people here, they begin to connect with the land, and then there's this outpouring of his Which spirit. is what's happening, right? Many, many it is. Where, begin, where the Messianic community, hallelujah, has doubled since we've been here, and it is constantly growing. And, um, and like uh, uh, today at Christchurch was just absolutely packed, people everywhere. Um, and, uh, and so there's just lots Lots of activity and excitement and, and questions going on. And, uh, Hallelujah. Yeah, exactly. And on, on Sunday, the, the reading was from Luke where, where uh, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Please pray that the Lord of the harvest will send some more. And we all got we to pray that, guys, because um, it's, um, there's a lot of people out there that need this light. Right? Okay, uh, Janet. Just a quick comment here. I, I, I was looking in a commentary, and it refers to, in terms of the, uh, the seventh year, it refers in Deuteronomy 31, um, verse 10, uh, Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of the remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when Israel comes before the Lord, you shall read the Torah in front of all Israel in their hearing. So there was sort of a sense that not only is it a year of rest for the land, which was probably a lot more agrarian than, than, than we know it now, that the people were also having a rest from actually farming. And that was the time that Moses said, I want the people during this time, I want them to hear, I want them to hear the whole Torah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, there's that cyclical reading that you get from the Torah. There's the the seven year reading of the Sabbath years, and then there's also the Jubilee. There's this strong emphasis on uh, Sabbaths, rests, the reading of the Bible, the people in the land. The Sabbath is so powerful, right, that it doesn't just affect humans, doesn't just affect the land. There's another person it affects. Yeah. So can someone read Exodus thirty one verse seventeen? Actually, read 16 and 17, the first verse to... Um, I'll do it. Yep, great. So Exodus 31, 16 and 17. What version are you reading from? I've got the uh, ISR. Okay, the ISR. Yeah, the Institute for Scriptural Research called the Scriptures. Okay, yep. Okay, go for it. 30, 16 and 17 or 31? Th Exodus 31, 16 and 17. Okay. And the children of Israel shall guard the Sabbath to perform the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. Between me and the children of Israel, it is a sign forever. For in six days, Yehovah made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. There you go. So the Sabbath is so powerful, it can also refresh God. That's not to say... Oh, my gosh, God got tired. Now he's in a weakened state. The enemy's going to come and attack him. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the text is declaring that the Sabbath is an incredible gift to the universe. And it also has a way 
of affecting the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I never noticed refreshed. I wonder what that is in Hebrew, Aaron. Yinafesh. It's the word is yinafesh. And several several versions of our Bible actually will not translate that word. Some versions, uh, like the old NIVs from the 1970s, will say, and God rested. Stop. Exactly. Like they just they, they just won't work, you translate the word the Yahinafesh and and he was refreshed because it implies God got tired. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and and that's a theological problem for some translators. And they go, oh no, that can't possibly be there. And so we're just not gonna not gonna do it. Um, whereas Jewish people are going, wow, look how look how amazing the Sabbath is. And he gave it to us. Wow, this thing that even refreshed the Lord. How much more are we going to be refreshed? How much more is the land going to be refreshed? There's a very different ways of thinking about, about the, the verse. But anyway, the point is in these first uh, seven verses, very interesting, uh, seven, um, is that the Sabbath is incredibly powerful. It's, 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 uh, it's an absolute blessing and a gift, and it's also attached to the land. So you have this thing called the Shemitah. Now, going into verse 8, the next piece of holy time is this, this jubilee, the seven of sevens, um, which has lots of themes in it, which will uh, later on get spread into um, redemption and the idea of a goel. But we have seven weeks of seven years, um, and which gives 49 years, of course, and then you'll blow a trumpet. There'll be a shofar blast, the blast of a ram's horn on the 10th day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement. Very interesting that out of all of the calendar year, we have to wait all the way to month seven to announce the Jubilee. So there's something, something connected there to the theology and practice of the Day of Atonement, which gets a shofar blast, and you will consecrate the 50th year. So now you end up two Sabbaths. Right, you've had it. You've had a shemitah, and now you get another one. So the actual land is going to rest two years, okay? Um, and and it uh, it should be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. And 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 it's, you have to proclaim liberty. Sorry for that. It was very important. You proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Again, that conundrum: who's affected by this rule? Everyone. Okay. There's one. It's a. It's a. It's the same. It's the same. Same God for everyone. Uh, same spirit for everyone. Same faith for everyone. Same Messiah for everyone. And same liberty for everyone. Uh, it, the fiftieth year is the jubilee. You don't sow or reap. Uh, what grows of itself, you don't, and, uh, and or gather the grapes. There's no harvesting you do. You just take whatever the, the earth provides for you. So jubilee, it shall be holy to you, and you can eat whatever is produced naturally. Okay, you just so animals will be born. You can eat them. Okay, grains will grow. You can eat them. Plants will produce fruit. They're not going to stop. You can eat them. Like it's it's not that you're suddenly devoid of food. That's that's not what it is. Yeah, and uh, you've got a hand raised there, uh, David. Aaron, just a, a question here. So we count the Jubilee from Day of Atonement? That's a good question because um, la- obviously later on we connect Rosh Hashanah very closely yeah, with the Day of Atonement. Exactly. And, um, and 
And so you end up with multiple calendars running. You've got the sort of religious calendar, you've got an agrarian calendar, and you've got the, um, the, the yearly calendar, so to speak. Um, it could be that that's the way it went, is that even right back then, they were, they were picking the idea up that in the fall, that's when we pick up a new year. Yeah, that's when the calendar changes, because the calendar changes in the seventh month. And um, so it's, it's um, of course, it's, it's been a tradition, but I see it more as um, a keeping with, the, um, with your real um, age, for instance. Um, the Lord told Moses that this shall be the beginning of months, so you were talking about the month of Nisan. Um, if it was the beginning of months, then he doesn't need to tell him that this shall be the beginning of months. So there was a change. And that change um, began a new order for them of counting the months. But it doesn't change if somebody is born in, um, in, in, in a particular month, it doesn't change his birth year. And so they continue to count their birth year by that former calendar, which now became the seventh month. And um, they continue to use this other one to count other things. So that when you count the seventh month, it becomes the month of um, the, when you are announcing the yovel, when you are announcing many other things. But it's also the month where the calendar changes. Cool. Excellent. Thanks for that. The uh, um, interesting part of the Day of Atonement is, well, here's a question. Why wouldn't you announce this at Passover if... Passover is supposed to become really important for us as Christians. I mean, isn't that, you know, Jesus is going to die, he's going to get risen from the dead, why not pronounce a jubilee? Um, Isn't that interesting that the text itself says, proclaim liberty on this day, okay, Um, which is interesting. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are not a small group, they're quite large and they're dispersed in various parts of of the country, they wrote that the Messiah would return on the, on the Day of Atonement. For them, that's when the Messiah would return, uh, return because they read this text in Leviticus. They picked up that the Messiah was going to come and proclaim liberty to the captives, which you see in the book of Isaiah. That's what happens here in Jubilee, in, in the Jubilee year at, at uh, Yom Kippur. So therefore, it's just clear to them, Messiah comes at, uh, at, at, at Yom Kippur. And they wrote a whole a whole tract on it, on when it was going to have. And the, the interesting thing about that tract is at the end of the scroll, they then tell you who the Messiah is, right? They say the Messiah is Melchizedek and Melchizedek is God. And you go, ooh, that's interesting. So you end up with this. Um, it basically says that about 100 years prior to, the, prior to Jesus, there was a belief within a group of Judaism that God himself would be the Redeemer, Right. And uh, so it's not something foreign. It's not this Greek invention. It's actually uh, a Jewish a Jewish movement to say, no, no, look, we need a redeemer. Absolutely. It's going to be God. He's, uh, he's our redeemer. He always was our redeemer. He's going to do it extra special now. So it's interesting thought. Any other comments on the, the Day of Atonement? But that's interesting what you just said, Aaron, about the 49 weeks and the Jubilee. Because if you look at, um, it just makes me think of Daniel with a, sorry, 49 years and then the Jubilee. Daniel's got the same principle, 49 weeks and for the people of Israel. And then we, we know it's going to come into the, the Messiah coming. So that concept of, of the 50th week, year, whatever, is a Jubilee, the Messiah. Yeah. Indeed. Okay, I was making a note of that. 70 weeks. 
the 70 weeks, yes. The, um, there is a, another book uh, which is preserved by the uh, Ethiopians called the Book of Jubilees. Has anybody heard of it? Yep, okay. Um, it's, basically, it's basically Genesis and Exodus, but heavily expanded. Um, so whenever you've got uh, gaps in the text where something happens and you don't know what they really mean, then uh, Jubilees comes on and really expands that. For example, in Genesis 6, where it talks about the sons of God coming down to mingle with the daughters of man, the text doesn't say anything else. But Jubilees gives you this long description of who they were, where they came from, what their names were, and what they did. Um, and, uh, and, 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 but it counts time by Jubilees. It decides that, no, the Jubilee is incredibly important and the entire universe, all of human history, can be divided up into these periods of Jubilees. And um, An Egyptian book, did you say? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Kate? Did you say that book was Egyptian? No, uh, no, it's, Ethi- it's in the Ethiopian canon. It's written, okay. it, it's, it's written by Jewish people in the Second Temple period. Thank you. And uh, it was well... It was dispersed all around the Jewish world. It appears in Greek. Uh, uh, no one's found a Hebrew version, but they know that there was one because um, that's what people are translating from. <clears throat> but the, it's preserved. That means the people who have the whole book and keep it in their Bibles are um, the, the Ethiopians, both Ethiopian Orthodox Christians and Ethiopian Jews. Okay, The Ethiopian Jewish Bible to this day has the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilees in it, okay? Um, that always causes consternations with the rabbis here. They always go, what are you doing with these you know, extra books in your Bible? Um, but they say, we've been reading this for thousands of years, then you showed up and said, we can't have it. You know, no, we're not doing that, <laughs> you know? Because um, you got to remember that the Ethiopian Jewish community thought that they were it, right? You know, when, these, when they saw these white Jews come and say, hey, we're Jews from Israel, they say, it's not possible, you're not black. You know, so you can't be Jewish. Uh, <laughs> they, they, were, they were quite trapped for, for a while. But um, it's a fascinating text. It does give you an idea that at the time uh, of, the, of, the, of Jesus, well, a couple hundred years prior to Jesus, they were running multiple calendars. Okay. And um, that, it, it highlights that there was a lunar calendar. There was also a solar calendar. And there was this religious calendar running with a very interesting dates. And, um, and this may explain why Jesus is having Passover according to the Gospel of John when it's not Passover, is that there were multiple calendars. They were very heavily aligned at that time. And, uh, and it was Passover for some people. Uh, and then he's off- then offered as Passover on another calendar, the temple calendar. So it, it, it's a guy wrote a book on that. Um, his name is James Vanderkam, I think. He wrote a very good book on calendars at the time of Jesus. It's an ex- excellent text, not very big. It's only like two, three hundred pages. Um, very easy to read. Okay, Rocky, you've got a, a hand raised. Yes, sir. Um, well, I just wanted to bring up the fact that I use the gastronomically corrected calendar. Gastronomically correct. <laughs> uh, no, no pictures on that one, please. Uh, okay, you, you, can, you can send us pictures of your garden. Perhaps, perhaps something else. So, 
looking at the text now, in the in the year of Jubilee, what do we do? Okay, we don't just blow trumpets and say, "Woo, it's a Jubilee." You do something, and what happens is, it, it basically we even everything out. We start the playing field again. Um, everyone returns to their property, and w- what property? The initial tribal divisions that we when we first entered the land. Right? The, um, you go your, your clan, your tribe, and uh, uh, title deeds that you had exchanged and bought and sold all go back, uh, which means you had to be very careful what you were doing. Okay, uh, and people were okay. People were they weren't ignorant of this um, because they understood that you're not buying the land, which will become important as we've noticed in verse 23. Um, you're buying what the land produces. And Israel does this to this day, that when you, when you buy, you can build a house on a land and you can own the house, but you don't actually own the land. Okay? The land is always, uh, you just lease the land. And then eventually it, it uh, goes back. Um, uh, the, just to, in verse 17, you shall not wrong another, which means you shouldn't um, do false dealings in relation to this jubilee. The jubilee is holy. Time is holy. So to treat it holy. Um, but you shall feel your God, for I am the Lord your God. So God here adds his name to this command, this element of holy time. Therefore, in verse 18, you'll do my statutes, okay, the, the, uh, the chokim, the laws. You'll keep my rules and perform them, and, and then you will dwell in your land securely. There is an element of a, of a condition those if-then statements that we see in, in the, particularly in the Gospels. Um, uh, if you keep this, if you actually follow the, sab- uh, the Sabbath, the, the system that I'm putting up, if you uh, honour this holy time of liberty, if you give back and let everyone go back to a, a, the level playing field, then I'll protect you. No one will be able to, 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 to take you over. Um, the land will yield its fruit, you'll eat, and you'll dwell, in, dwell securely. At the end of the day, that really is all we need, is it not? Right? You know, roof our, over our heads, food on our plate, loving, warm family to, to, to eat with, um, and all watched over by a very loving and present God. Not much more that we actually, there's a lot of other stuff, and that's why I like in the, in the Gospels, seek first the kingdom, everything else shows up. Okay, but, but, but make sure you get the, the, the priority right. Uh, and then there's that little uh, verse which, which describes the worry people have. Uh, but what am I going to eat? You know, I'm a, you know, come on. It's like if I don't go to the supermarket and buy my milk, how am I going to get my milk? And it, there is that sort of idea of a, that question. And, um, and then God responds to that legitimate, right? It's, it's not like an illegitimate question. It's a legitimate question. Um, you know, if I'm thirsty, I've got to tell you about it. I'm thirsty. In verse 21, God says, I will command my blessing. Now, that is a very interesting way to describe how God is going to enact his blessing. Not just I'm going to send my blessing or I'm going to pour out my spirit on my blessing. I will command it. Okay. And he says, I will send. Does it? He doesn't say command. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Michelle's version says, I'll send. What version have you got? Huh? Uh, NIV? Mm-hmm. Aha, that might be. What, what other versions have people got? New King James. 
And it says... Which verse are we on, sorry? Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, verse 21 in Hebrew is tzavuotai, uh, tzavuoti, I will command. Yeah, it's then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth yeah. year. It's a, yeah. I will command. Um, uh, so he commands his blessing in the sixth year. And that sixth year produces an abundance. So what does that mean? It means you see the blessing even before you engage in the rest. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, it's not like uh, uh, I'm not putting God to the test. I have absolutely nothing. I shall walk into a room with absolutely nothing, and there before me will be food. It's rather, okay, I can already smell the food as I'm walking down the hallway. It's like, oh, my gosh, what, what am I going to see in front of me? It's going to be incredible. God has already poured out the blessing, and the land has responded and said, you got it, baby. Here it is, and, and produces uh, abundance. And, um, and then you live on that. And then you and you engage in the in the cycle again and create this the cycle. Many of us don't appreciate the cycle of life because we live in cities. But those that actually do live in the country and a bit more closer to the earth, they see the cycle of life and they see the way the world works and they see the seasons a bit more than than we do. And um, and so some of these verses uh, have a lot more resonance with them, a lot more a lot more power. But they are true for all of us. That, uh, that we all live in the land, whether whether we're living in a city or in the country, it's the land, and we are all reaping from its um, its fruit. Our task then is to make sure that we participate in this 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 holy activity as a holy people, using holy time in a holy land, um, and uh, and and reap the rewards of doing so. Any, any other comments or questions regarding the Jubilee? It's setting up in the next couple of uh, the rest of the chapter um, the idea of liberty, redemption. It'll, it'll flesh out a little bit more how you return and buy back property. What happens if people can't, can't get their property back in the right way? Um, and, then, and many of those things will, will end up in um, messianic theology. It doesn't mention fish or birds or other food because we don't just eat vegetables we don't just Correct. eat product yes it doesn't say you can't fish right yes so, yeah so you wouldn't you know god's given you enough to eat you will eat you should do yes correct but is that not true of anything that we do you know we we we, we all know god's going to provide and look out for us yes yes Yes, but then we all still panic and worry. And, and yes. will I have enough? I've got ten people coming. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, yeah. We still, we still pray. We still, you know, call. We, we, we sometimes even say, "I can't." Yeah. Can Can we come and stay? No, I, I just can't. Okay, but uh, but you actually can. <laughs> we say yes and then do it. That's what you have to do. Just do it. Yeah, just uh, yeah. That's and I think that's one of the lessons that a lot of. Uh, that Israel didn't always do. Remember, we, we look at Israel as a, in, in terms of its sacred history, and we realize that they preserved their own failings too. They preserved the times they did well, and they preserved the times that they didn't. And we can learn from that, um, or we should try and learn from that. Janet, you've got a hand raised. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at this in terms of, of land and, and so on. And is the Lord, is God setting up? A society where there will not be a class structure per se. Um, there's a sense that that you, you know, I mean, some people are going to be more uh, adept 
at, at working and getting more land and so on and so forth. But but the Lord is saying, I, I don't want that to be I don't want that to be the foundation of your society where it, it's not that people aren't given different abilities, but somehow, as you said, he wants to even out even things out so that people don't become attached to land or what it produces in terms of profit. Um, I don't know. It just, it, it's just, it's so, it's so in contrast to the society that we live in now where, um, you know, we have mega farms. Yeah. I'll make a comment on what you've said and then also make a comment on, on, on what Shimshons has put in. He's actually put in the bell, the Liberty Bell, uh, that the United States, for those that were celebrating um, 4th of July, um, and it actually says uh, to proclaim liberty to the, is it to all people or to the captives or something? It actually quotes the verse from Leviticus. Uh, yeah, which is very interesting. Um, I, I, the, the, the Shemitah and Jubilee year where, where everything goes back is, a, I don't know if it creates a class-less society, um, it, it certainly, because there's going to be those people who have businesses and a bit more land than others, and things like that, but it certainly creates equality in the effect that it's liberty for all, regardless of class. And um, because you know, people are going to have different size families, they're going to have different numbers of kids, you're going to need to have big, bigger houses. Um, some of the kibbutzim in Israel really honestly tried to make everybody 100% equal, and it failed miserably. What do I mean by that? Imagine a kibbutz where they gave everybody the exact same size house, and they would say everyone can have one picture on a wall. You can't have two because that's just, that's just evil. Everyone will have exactly the same. Everyone, and, and that caused all kinds of problems because people had different numbers of kids. People had... Some people took more photos. Some people didn't take any. Some people were artists and made lots of paintings. Where are they going to put them? You put one up. You know, it just didn't work. <laughs> it, and but so this idea that we can all be treated equally, but we actually some of us will be different because we'll be different, and we should celebrate our differences. Aaron, when did you? I'm not sure if you mentioned like they don't celebrate the the Yovel, the Jubilee, but when would the actual Jubilee? If there was to be counted on a calendar, when? That's a good question. I actually, I actually don't know. Um, I might have to look that one up. There's a lot of um, debate about that, but um, most rabbis will tell you that nobody knows the real jubilee, and um, and it stopped being counted since the time of Joshua, and so nobody knows, and they tell you that. That's. Bad. I know I've seen different dates, but I'm just wondering if there was more of one official date. And yeah, I don't think there's. Well, yeah, there's a lot of dates, just like you mentioned, but um, I don't think there's a consensus to agree on a particular date has been. I think that's one of the reasons most rabbis will dismiss it and say we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. But a lot of people believe that um, Israel returning back to the land um, um, was was a jubilee year. Um, well, that being a, um, a, a jubilee, yeah, yeah. and uh, but that's more from speculative. Right? Yeah, so I think I'll I'll try and look it up for you. You can ask your rabbi friend. <laughs> I will, and I and I know he's going to say exactly what Shimshon said. 
oh, we don't know. And you go, okay, we don't know. So how are we going to find out? Oh, no, we don't know. And the temple, yeah, the, the, the whole thing. I know that's, that's the point of contention. All right, guys. Well, thanks for uh, getting going through these two. I think they're great little um, pieces of time, Jubilee and the Shemitah. Shemitah still being observed. 25th of September finishes. Jubilee, no one's got a clue. Um, but there are theological principles, biblical principles, spiritual principles that we should look at, examine, and put into practice. Because as the Lord says, right, this is for both the stranger and the Israelite. And this is, uh, as, as Moses has said, this Torah is, a, is an incredible light to the nations. So we should look at it, see the blessings that are, uh, that are entwined in this, and uh, put that into practice. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org Blessings from the City of the Great King